and welcome to another episode of Melanin Macabre, the podcast. Um, I am your co-host, Amy, and the, my co-host, Kristen. What's up? Um, and in this podcast, we talk about, um, I guess, like everything kind of under the sun relating to macabre, creepy things um, within the context of uh, Black and Indigenous um and people of color communities as well as uh just kind of like other marginalized communities um so yeah uh how are you Kristen I'm doing good um so we were talking about hair earlier Mm -hmm. and I actually have been thinking about my next like hair adventure Mm -hmm. myself because um I usually wear box braids and I'm very low maintenance with my hair like I Hey, okay, so for people who are just tuning in, I am black and I have <laughs> you four C <laughs> I'm black and I have four C hair. And it's been a struggle like whenever I go natural. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just don't I'm just very low maintenance. Like I cannot stand the maintenance that goes into like maintaining natural hair. I dread wash day because it takes all day. Mm-hmm. and um but i find i finally found like, this really nice hair salon in like where i live um and so they do my box braids but they specialize in natural hair oh, nice. and yeah and my braider she suggested i told her i was like oh i, I really want to wear my hair natural but like the maintenance and i just feel like i look weird when my hair is like in its natural state yeah like i'm still trying to get used to it and then she suggested that i go get a trim I realized that I have not trimmed my hair in a very long time. Mm. And um and she also suggested I get a, a deep condition. So mm. that I'm I was like cons- like weighing that and I was also thinking about potentially maybe getting dreadlocks. Maybe. Ooh. Maybe. I like that. Well, if you do decide to do them, I think that'd be really cool. I think yeah. really Have you ever you have you ever done them before or no? No. I have to like research it because I don't know I don't know like what like I feel like actually locks would be kind of perfect for me because mm-hmm. it's you just lock your hair and I think you twist you get them retwisted or relocked like mm-hmm. maybe a couple times like occasionally but for the yeah. most part you can get up and go which is what I'm looking for um but I just want to like know what I'm doing first but I might try natural the, my whole natural hair again and just get tips from my hairstylist on how to style it yeah um that'd be nice yeah yeah so. That's what's going on. Oh, and then a, another thing is that I've picked up playing the flute again. Oh, yay. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should pick up the clarinet as well. Yeah, I think you should. Because, like, um, uh, and also for listeners, Amy and I were both in high sc- middle school and high school bands. I played the flute growing yep, yep. up. Amy played the clarinet. And so I picked up my my flute from my mom's house. Um, I bought a shit ton of sheet music, which is getting delivered on Friday. I bought Michael Jackson flute solos, ABBA, um, a bunch of like Disney stuff. And I'm really excited. Have you, um, okay, so sorry to interrupt, but have you found <laughs> that you've regressed a little in your flute playing or are you right yes. back where you left? Okay. I've yeah. regressed. Because I'm asking because um, for those of you that know how to play the clarinet, you guys know what I'm talking about. But uh, I know that with clarinets, there's reed widths. And mm-hmm. when I stopped playing, um, when I stopped playing clarinet, my junior year of high, the junior year of high school, 
I was at like a three and a half read, which is like a more advanced read number. I guess like maybe intermediate to advanced. I don't really remember. But it was mm-hmm. more advanced than like the other beginner clarinet players in uh, in our ensemble. And then when I – so I stopped playing at junior year. Um, and we also have like a band teacher that kind of like sucked the fun out of playing an instrument. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say names, but he sucked the fun <laughs> out of it. Um, mm-hmm. But when I picked it, when I picked it up just to practice – um, I was downgraded. I found that I was downgraded to use like read number two, which is kind of like the read that read number that they recommend for people who are just beginning to play the clarinet. So I was like, dang, I feel like if I picked it up now, though, I would still kind of like know where everything is. But, yeah, um, so I like I still um, so I regressed a teensy bit in terms of like breathing mm-hmm. and in terms of the rhythm but no. I still remember where, like, the vast majority of the notes are. I just got – I get screwed up on the super high notes that you don't yeah. really go into in high school. Yeah. Um, so my main thing And also, like, the is, closing – like, you know how, like, the closing of the mouth? Yes. Yeah, and, like, I remember – sorry to interrupt you again. But I remember, mm-hmm. like, when I was playing the clarinet, you, you develop those muscles and you work those muscles as they – well, at least for me, like, it goes around my mouthpiece. I guess yours goes, like, slightly on top of the mouthpiece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like for me, I found that like those muscles that I had in my lips were no longer strong and my voice just my lips were just kind of like having a difficult time holding on to the mouthpiece because mm-hmm. my lips just weren't strong anymore. And yeah. I was like, dang, my lips hurt. <laughs> I've only been playing for two seconds. Yeah. And I also found and this is really sad to say, and I don't know what it is, like maybe I'm just out of shape or something. Mm. But it takes a lot of breath to play the flute. And I felt, like, a little out of breath, like, when I was done playing. And I do not remember feeling that way when I was younger. So, like, I'm like, <laughs> what the hell is going on? Um, but maybe I'm just not used to it. Like, not used to that, like, constant, like, breathing yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but I ended up buying one of my old um, foundational flute books. So mm-hmm. I'm going to practice, like, all of that, like, breathing, intonation, scales, all of that. And, like, oh, I was thinking. Yeah, and then I was thinking, like, I, I just want to do it for fun because, like, yeah. playing it is really, like, it's just, I don't know, it's just nice and fun when mm-hmm. you, like, have a song that you really like and you're, like, it sounds nice when you're playing it. Yeah. And then I was thinking that maybe whenever we get over this, like, weird pandemic thing that I would look for, like, a concert like a local concert band to, to audition for. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't gone that far. But that's so we'll great well okay i feel inspired yeah. like i feel yeah. i feel so inspired that's awesome no i'm definitely gonna do it now i think i'm yeah i'm like inspired um <laughs> yeah that's awesome i yeah. i haven't done anything nearly that interesting mm-hmm. uh, but <laughs> i basically since this is a new year mm-hmm. um i kind of what i've been doing is just kind of focusing on my goals and what i want to accomplish this year um Mm -hmm. i i think i told i did tell you that i signed up for the crossfit open games yes um and i'm really excited but i'm actually i'm really really surprised myself because i i kind of signed up for it not knowing exactly what it was like i literally signed up for it and then afterwards was like okay what did i sign up for um (laughs) but basically it is just kind of there's like these crossfit games every year Mm -hmm. and i guess the open is kind of just where everybody does the same workouts i guess or whatever 
and then mm-hmm. your your results are ranked and then whoever is in a certain level or certain percentile i guess gets to go on to the quarterfinals and then eventually the finals and then you compete in like the actual games but it's but apparently the open workouts are free to everyone and it's just kind of a great it's sort of like a universal fitness test almost like those fitness tests you took in pe and -hmm. it's just kind of cool to see where you stack up with people all around the country and um so i was like oh that's cool like i don't i'm not delusional like i've only been in crossfit for like (laughs) nine months i'm also like overweight not to say that overweight girls can't do things because i've proven that that's not true but Mm -hmm. i'm I'm actually out of shape. Like, I'm not... I'm in the best shape of my life, but technically, to, to like, putting myself <laughs> up against, like, athletes, um, I am technically, like, out of shape. So, mm-hmm. I have much to work on, but I am excited that I did something that I wouldn't have done, like, a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. And also, when I was setting up my profile, I found myself on the CrossFit Games app, Mm-hmm. as like an athlete like i found myself like on their roster as an athlete oh! under under my affiliate gym which um crossfit verity woot woot mm-hmm. so um yeah i'm just really excited like i'm really proud of myself because yeah um for those of you that don't know i'm a little on the plus size um uh, not sorry my, i'm trying not to sneeze mm-hmm. um put your ooh. tongue through your mouth I'm just going to sneeze. Edit this out. Okay. Um, so I'm actually, uh, ooh. Um, but I'm a little bit on the overweight side. And so that for a, for a long time has been something that's like held me back from doing a lot of things. And mm-hmm. last year was sort of the beginning of me kind of coming out of that. And then, so basically for 2022, I just want to be my best self. Um, I want to present my best self to the world and kind of do things for me because they make me feel good instead of me Mm -hmm. worrying about what other people think. Um, and so, yeah. And so I actually, um, Kristen, I don't know if you can see, I bought Mm -hmm. this PR jar. Yeah. Um, on Etsy. And for you guys, for those of you that don't know, PR are personal records and I have these little sheets um that basically every time I reach a personal record I put one into the jar and then ideally at the end of the year I look back on all of my accomplishments that I've made over the year to sort of see my progress yeah and so I I love that and then I have a habit tracker because I do want to start developing more healthy habits um Mm -hmm. and yeah like I just kind of want to be a bad ass athletic bitch like I want to be yes. that bitch. So yeah, so that <laughs> is like something that I've been doing. So yeah, I love all of that. I love all of that so much. Like like especially the CrossFit. Like I, because I always like thought of CrossFit. I was like, dang, like that's so intimidating. Like pushing the tires around and all that. And I always, I always think it's so cool that you do CrossFit. And I'm excited to see like what the results are for the, the yeah. CrossFit. Um, Me too. What is it called again? crossfit games the crossfit games yeah um yeah also like krista do you remember when we were like in pe and we would just like walk the mile yeah i think <laughs> i think anyone who knew me in high school would be like this girl this bitch is crossfit because <laughs> honestly i yeah we would i would walk the mile and then there was always there i guess like do you, i don't know Kristen, if you remember pe like 
you would they would have that maybe like the first 15 minutes and you kind of got to choose what activity you wanted to do and so yes. some people would like play basketball just just pick whatever activity i remember chris we were in PE together one year and we yeah. literally just like walked around the gym yep talking yep. and that was like our <laughs> that was our activity and yep. then um <laughs> and then do you remember like our final exam was always the mile <laughs> yeah Oh, and our scores were so bad. Just like, so bad. Oh my god. <laughs> I think I think I was like in the 30 plus minute range from Oh yeah. Yeah, the five so we had to do three miles. And so the alternative to that, instead of running on the track, we could do a 5K. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there was like a local 5K that falls around the same time our final exams were. And so yeah. I think one year you did the you did the 5K both years, I think, but on yeah. one year, I did it with you guys the last year of PE which was mm-hmm. uh, sophomore year. And I remember that I was like one of the last ones. <laughs> and uh, my time was like 35 minutes. It was so bad. Mine was 30 minutes. Yeah. Do you remember that you had a crush on a guy? I was just about to li- bring him up. And you lied. I was just, <laughs> I was just bringing that up. No, I can say, because like, I remember <laughs> I was, I had, was talking to this boy I liked. And I, I think I, um, I forget because I think I tried telling him my time. Do you want to give his first name? No, no, no. <laughs> let's call no, him. No. Let's call him Bill. Bill. Yes, let's call him Bill. Um, and so I think I remember. No, I think I was like, oh yeah, like one of my friends got like. Um, or no, no, I said no. You told him that you got. A oh yeah, time. I told him. Yeah, and I was like, I think I got thirty minutes, and then no, you said like, no. You said twenty eight. I did. Yeah, I, I no, remember. I, you you told him. Sorry, but you told him. Uh, you gave him a time better than your time, and I remember you told him like twenty. I think it was you said twenty something minutes. I think it was twenty eight minutes, <clears throat> because you you had your real time, and then you told him a different time to impress him. Mm-hmm. And then remember it. He wasn't really. Oh, in, that's right. You that's right. That? Yeah, but you got was like, a oh. different reaction of what you expected. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm realizing now that I don't remember this at all. Okay, like, well, I, let me tell the story. Okay, because no, I thought I remembered that I told him the time, the actual time, but I didn't say it was mine. And then, I don't know how I introduced it, but then he was like, wow, 30 minutes, that's really bad. And then, and then I doubled back and I was like, oh wait, mine was actually 28 minutes. Or something like that, because he told me it was bad. No, but That's I, what I remember. Yeah, well, maybe I'm being fuzzy on it too, but I do remember there was a. Oh, I think actually, okay, I think your story is actually accurate, but I think what it's missing is the most hilarious part was <laughs> that you were like you gave so you gave them your time, saying that it was somebody else's time. Yes, and then yes. There, and then he was like, "Wow." <laughs> Did he even train or did she even ah! train? Oh, that's right. Oh <laughs> my God. That? Yes. I remember he said yeah, that. He's like, that's really bad. Did she even train? I remember that was the oh. funniest part of the whole story. Oh he was like, did she even train? And the answer is no, I did not train. No, we just, and honestly, knowing now, knowing what I know now about fitness, we should have been training for that. Like that was, <laughs> I threw, yeah. I threw up. Oh. The minute I ran off the finish line, I was like, where is the bathroom? I threw up <laughs> and I, that was, I never believed in projectile vomiting until that day. Like all I had in my stomach was water and Gatorade oh my, and oh I projectile gosh. vomited on the toilet 
and it was like water and Gatorade, just like blah. I don't, oh I'm actually surprised gosh. I didn't miss the toilet. Like it was, it came with such force. <laughs> and I was like, and I literally, no joke, I have not run a 5K since. Well, that's messed up that because no one, I feel like no one told us that we had to train because we only Well, did no, they those- did. They did. They did. Oh, they did? Okay, But the never thing mind. is, the, the their training was, remember, we would like, we would build up to the mile. Oh, right, 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 those, right, Those were, like, our training sessions. But because yeah. we only had PE, like, two times a day, two times a week or three times a week, depending on whether, you know, whether the A day fell on a Monday or Tuesday that week, mm-hmm. like, what we weren't doing was we weren't providing supplementary training. Like, and also, oh, yeah. I don't know about you, but I wasn't running the miles that they were giving us in school. Like, I was walking those things. Oh, yeah. And, Mm-mm. yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, now, knowing what I know now, like, we should have walked that. We should have trained – at least yeah. like one more day a week for that. We were, we <laughs> were unprepared. And I remember yeah. my freshman year, we I I had to run the mile on the track, mm-hmm. and I remember I didn't even get to finish the mile. We had to be pulled in because we, we had like I guess like the teacher had a cutoff time, and it was hot as it was so hot it was hot as balls because mm. um, it was hot as balls. It was hot Virginia weather, yep. and we. Like where we were, and I was trying my darndest. Like I actually remember trying my hardest on that mile, and they pulled us in. I didn't even get to finish. And I remember I went to the bathroom to clean up, and my forehead was purple. Oh my god! (laughs) It was purple, and it wouldn't go away. Like I had to go to the next class with that purple thing on my head, and it was like that for like hours. Oh my gosh! Do you know what? Um, do you remember? Oh wait. I don't know if you're going to remember her, but there's this really athletic girl freshman year. I don't actually, I don't know if it was eighth grade or ninth grade, but she was very athletic. And for whatever reason, I ran it with her. I ran the mile with her and I just stayed with her. And what's, what was she white? Was she black? I'm trying to narrow it down. She was a white girl. White. Blonde, brunette. Blonde. Was she British? No, but she has the same name as the British person. British with a K or British with a J? British with a K. So she has the same name as British with a K. I yeah, love how we not- know who we're talking about. <laughs> okay, yeah. British with a K. Um, but but not her. She's very athletic. Was she tomboyish or was she like girly? Yes, she was a tomboy. Like all, like through and through, complete tomboy. Okay, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So for whatever reason, I ran the mile with her. Oh, and, Lord. And... <laughs> And so I was like, if I ran the mile with DeAndre, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah, and I kept up with her, and I—that was the only time in my effing life that I got eight minutes on the mile because I kept up with her. Well, working working out with other people actually pushes you harder. So that is—I that actually believe—I believe that. How were you encouraging me? How were you afterwards? I wanted to die. Like I think I remember. Like I don't think I was ever like that worn out. Like well, if I tr- if I tried that because like, you didn't train, yeah. If I tried that tomorrow, I probably would have fainted. Like, well, no, because we're old. We're old. That's the thing. You could have done that at thirteen, fourteen. You could have done that, but we're yeah. old now. Like, okay, yeah. we're gonna. I'm gonna say this, and then we're gonna move on because I feel like we could talk about this forever. But yeah. so, like, I don't know if I told you this, but like, I had a workout this week where I woke up one morning. This week, I have this week. I woke up one morning. And my ankle, so I actually recently sprained my ankle in September. And it actually, mm-hmm. because I'm a teacher and I'm on my feet all day, mm-hmm. it 
there's no fractures. I already had x-rays and everything. But it's just mm-hmm. had a hard... The swelling has had a hard time going down. And then when I was walking my dog, like, a month ago, I didn't twist it, but I kind of, like, fell on it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of, like, started acting up again. Um, and then... So I was dealing with ankle pain from my, you know, sprained ankle. And then I woke mm-hmm. up one morning, and for some reason, my thumb really hurt. Oh, and my thumb really hurt and I'm thinking like oh my god it's arthritis oh my god it's like all of these things because I'm a hypochondriac and it really just it really hurt when I would like move it like when I would press on it or whatever and Mm -hmm. so because I'm on this like health journey I went and worked out anyway and then Mm -hmm. like my my coach shout out to Nick um kept suggesting workouts to do and like I couldn't do any workout because everything you need your thumb for everything like he was like push-ups I couldn't do push-ups uh it was like do burpees i couldn't do burpees like everything Mm. just like he was like do front squats and like i couldn't do front squats because my thumb was hurting and then finally he was like do ring rows and i was doing ring rows but then eventually my thumb started hurting it was just awful and i was like Mm -hmm. i can't believe this is happening to my body like my whole left side is deteriorating before my eyes like it was it was so bad and then i had to buy like a thumb brace i was like oh my god i'm gonna need surgery and then, oh. and then no joke, like two days later, it was fine. And then it turns out that I had maybe just like slept on it wrong. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? Like, this is just what happens when you're old, when you're getting older. Yeah. And I, I will say real quick that I can't do push-ups and I can't do any, what are those, tricep dips? Anything mm-hmm. that like puts my wrist, mm-hmm. my right wrist at like an angle, mm-hmm. I can't do it because I have... um. It's not carpal tunnel. It's like, oh, it's like something else. Cubital, ulnar. Oh, cubital. Or, no, it's it's like ulnar something. Ulnar nerve. Yeah. So so basically, I have flare ups. Um, whenever I so I can't do push ups at all, or else I have like horrific pain and I can't move my I can't move my right wrist at all. Oh my god. When I have flare ups and I have Is it to ulnar wear, nerve entrapment. Yes, something like that. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So yeah, like I can't do push-ups or anything like that because if it if it if it like irritates it, I get flare-ups. Um, it's like practically like like almost unbearable pain, and I have to mm. wear like a brit a wrist thingy or whatever it's called. Um, and sometimes typing like irritates it too. Oh my gosh! Um, but when I, yeah, I can't do anything that puts my my body weight on it, and that just popped up recently, like within the last like year. Have you um? <laughs> Have you, like, talked to a doctor about it? Yeah. And she just told me to do, like, she gave me, like, a list of exercises to do. Mm-hmm. Um, And she also, and she just told me, like, do the exercises. And she just said, try not to put stress on your wrist. That's all mm-hmm. she could tell me. So I was like, oh, okay. So, Dang. I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Yeah, it really sucks. But it, once I figured out the flare ups, I yeah, I, I have less. I have less of them now that I know that I can av- I can avoid it if I can. Dang, yeah, that sucks. Getting old. Heck yeah, and the working from home thing probably doesn't help. It really doesn't. My whole setup is effed up, honestly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel that. Um. All right. Well, we've been talking for like twenty four minutes. <laughs> but We've become um, those like those podcasters that um you know that talk yeah. for a long time at the beginning and people have to skip yeah. but hopefully i thought that was an interesting tangent so i don't know no no no. i i agree i agree and that's probably <laughs> the most humorous thing you're gonna hear this whole podcast because i think it just kind of goes oh, down yeah. from there 
It kind of becomes like oh, yeah. a bummer afterwards. <laughs> At least mine's yeah, a bummer. Does. Mine's a bummer. I don't know about yours, but eh. mine's a well, bummer. sort of. Okay, uh, so then since yours a yours is a bummer, I think you should go first because then mine will be, uh, because mine's not like true crime. Oh, okay. Mine's not really true crime either. Mine's like unsolved mysteries. Oh, but, okay. But it is sad. Okay. Um. So mine is the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight Three Seventy. Okay. Oh my gosh, I'm scared. Um, okay, so I do want to preface this by saying that um, <sighs> I tried my best to research this, um, but I am not an aerospace engineer or I don't really know much about aviation. So a lot of the terms went over my head. And also, also I have um, ADHD and the language used in a lot of these articles were really technical. And so it was really hard to kind of follow. Um, and I am kind of bummed because as we were getting ready to, as I was getting ready for you to get ready, I actually stumbled upon an Atlantic, the an article from the Atlantic that was actually mm. really riveting, really interesting. And I f- wish I had read it before I finished this up because mm-hmm. some of the information that was provided in the Atlantic kind of like, is supplementary to what this is. Um, mm. So maybe, I don't know, I might do a follow-up or something, but I this I do have seven pages of notes, though, but I am going to try to, like, I'm going to try to cut that down. Um, but basically, okay. I just I just took it all from Wikipedia, so shout-out to Wikipedia. This is not my best Cat work, Wikipedia. but we're going to try to make it work. Um, <laughs> okay. So like I said, it is about the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines 370. Um, also, as someone who's terrified of flying, I hope that this doesn't come up as a flashback when oh, I can get on a flight <laughs> at some point. So maybe this was the best thing to do, but whatever. We're here. We did it. It is oh, what it Lord. is. Oh, okay. Lord. Um, okay. So the disappearance of this airline happened on oh, this flight. Sorry. Happened on March 8th, 2014. Uh, the plane was a Boeing 777-200ER. I have no idea what that means. Hmm, um, me neither. I do know that Boeing is not is going through it right now with the... Uh, hmm. The 757s? Yes. <laughs> this was not a hmm. 757. This was a 777. Okay. But 757 MAX. Remember, the MAX. Um, hmm. So the origin of the flight was Kuala Lumpur International Airport, which is Malaysia's main international airport. So they were flying out of Malaysia. And their final destination was Beijing's capital international airport. So there was no like layover or anything like that. It was just going straight. Um, It doesn't say how long the flight would have been, but I think it was probably like a six hour flight. Um, So there were 239 occupants in total. Um, 227 passengers and then 12 crew members. All the crew members, I believe, were from Malaysia. And then there was a mixture of nationalities amongst the passengers. Um, so I actually have, I don't have the manifest, but I do have the number of um, passengers. So most of the passengers were from Malaysia, of course. Um, and then I think the second largest group was um china with 15 and then um indonesia which had seven australia had six there were two canadians four french five from india 
two from Iran, one from the Netherlands, two from New Zealand, one from Russia, one from Taiwan, two from the Ukraine, and three from the United States. Okay, um, sorry. I feel bad for saying oh after the Canadians because it's it's sad that everybody was on this yeah. flight. Uh, sorry. No, no, you're no. I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. So pretty much like four continents were affected by. Um, sorry, something <laughs> just moved to my desk. I'm sorry. Um, so a little bit about the pilot. There were two pilots. Uh, the pilot in command was 53 year old Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah from Penang. Um, and he had joined Malaysian Airlines in 1981, and he had a total of 18,365 hours of flying experience. So he was um, an experienced pilot. And then his co-pilot was 27-year-old First Officer Farik Abdul Hamid, which that really got me because, like, we're 28, and, like, mm. I can't imagine. Man, I just can't imagine. Yeah. Um, but Flight 370... Flight 370 was his final training flight, and he was scheduled to be examined on his next flight. So this had was yeah. So this was gonna be his final training. So he was still in training, and then the next flight that he was on was gonna be his I guess like his test. Um, and he had accumulated two thousand six seven hundred and sixty three hours of flying experience. Um, so a little bit of information about the flight. Uh, so the flight was scheduled very early morning, like one in the morning like i'm actually mm -hmm. might have been like midnight um oh wait, sorry i have the flight duration here so it was uh supposed to be five hours and 34 minutes um and the plane was carrying when he when it took off it was carrying forty nine thousand one hundred kilograms which is about a thousand sorry one hundred and eight thousand two hundred pounds of fuel um including reserves so with the reserves and everything that would have allowed this flight to fly for seven hours and 31 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if you know about aviation, um, when flights are scheduled and planned out, they're scheduled in a way that gives them time to deviate to different airports. So the fuel, the extra fuel would have been enough to divert to alternate airports, which for this specific flight, um, I okay, these are... I cannot print these these names. I cannot pronounce. So if I offend anyone, I'm really sorry. I'm trying my best. So the alternate airports in Jinan Yao Shang International Airport and Hongsu Zhao Shan International Airport. Um, so they did have alternate airports if there, an emergency were to arise. Um, and so then the flight departed at twelve forty two. And was having regular communication with air control as it's taking off and it actually it was able to get to cruising altitude which was 35,000 feet up in the air um so there was communication um up until 106 malaysian time um which was um, an automated position report um so it this report gave the total fuel remaining um and then the last verbal signal to air traffic control um, happened at 1.19 when Captain Zahari acknowledged a transition from Lumpur radar to Ho Chi Minh 
um, to the air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh, which is in Vietnam. Um, and so the Lumpar, Lumpar radar, basically, this was quoted as saying, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120 decimal 9, good night. And then flight 370 responded, good night, Malaysian 370. Um, so basically, once the plane got into Ho Chi Minh territory, they were expected to signal air traffic control um, as the aircraft passed into Vietnamese airspace. Um, however, that didn't happen. So around, and basically like airplanes are in constant communication. Like they have to constantly be communicating with the air traffic controllers, um, in the territory that they're going into. So this lack of communication was already off the bat, really unusual. Um, and so after 1.30 PM, there was another captain on another plane that attempted to contact the crew on flight 370. Um, because the, because Ho Chi Minh city air traffic control wasn't able to contact flight 370. So basically they requested the captain of this particular aircraft to see if he could, um, contact, if they could, sorry, I don't want to assume that it was a man, if they could contact flight 370. So that's what this captain was doing. Um, the captain said that he was able to establish communication, but he was only he only heard like static and mumbling. So I guess a yeah. connection was made, but nobody really responded to that connection. Um, and then there were calls made to the flight 370's cockpit at 2.39 and 7.13, but which were unanswered, but they were acknowledged by the aircraft's satellite deck unit. I think that's what it's called, SDU. Which basically means the way the way I read it, which basically means the fl- the plane was still flying at seven thirty. It's mm. just there was no response, um, and at two thirty nine as well. Um, so one way that um, one way that air traffic controllers are able to, or the powers that be, are able to control um, or sorry locate planes is through radar. Um, and so at 1.20, Flight 370 was observed on radar at the Kuala Lumpur's air traffic control as it passed um, as it passed into the Gulf of Thailand. And then five seconds later, it disappeared off radar screens. So it wasn't visible on the radar screens. Um, and then at 1.21, um, Flight 370 disappeared from the radar screen at Kuala Lumpur air traffic control. Um, so, and was also lost on the radar of the Vietnamese air traffic control around the same time. So basically it disappeared off several, several air traffic controllers radars. Um, and so air traffic control uses secondary radar, um, which, uh, according to Wikipedia relies on a signal emitted by a transponder on each aircraft. Um, Therefore, um, the transponder on flight 370 no longer worked after 1.21 p.m. Um, so the final transponder data indicated that the, that the flight was flying at cruise altitude. 
Um, and there was very few weathers, like there was very few clouds around and there was no rain or lightning. So weather wasn't believed to be a reason for why um, they had lost communication. Um, and then also an analysis, the later analysis showed that the by the time that it disappeared off the flight, dis, sorry, the plane disappeared off radar, it was carrying 41,500 kilograms of fuel. Um, which is 91,500 pounds. So they had plenty of fuel when it, when it disappeared. Um, so lack of fuel wasn't also believed to be a reason for why it fell off the radar. Um, so at the time that the transponder stopped working, military radars showed that the flight was turning right but then it began making a left turn towards the southwest, um, towards the what I believe was like the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. And so then from 130 to 135, sorry, it went so it went across the Malay Peninsula, and then that's when like the altitudes are fluctuating from 31,000 feet to 33,000 feet. Um, and then at 152, the flight was detected passing just south of the island of Penang. So it was still. Um, flying it was just kind of like figuring out where it was going like what it was doing Hmm. um so then yeah so then with air control so with what was going on with air control um at 138 so we're going back to 138 uh malaysian time um the ho chi Minh area control center or the acc contacted the kuala lumpur area control center back in malaysia to ask about what was going on with flight 370 and had telling them communicating with them that they had not been able to establish verbal communication um Mm -hmm. and then that it was last detected and then also like when it was last detected by radar um so they exchanged so these two centers exchanged uh four different calls during the next 20 minutes with no new information so they were just kind of going back and forth kind of talking figuring out what was going on and then at 2.03, um, the air traffic controls relayed to Ho Chi Minh ACC um, that the Malaysian air, that the flight was now uh, in Cambodian airspace. Hmm. Um, and then Ho Chi Minh then contacted Kuala Lumpur twice in the next eight minutes asking for confirmation whether it, was, it actually was um, in Cambodian airspace. Then, so two fifteen. Hold on, <laughs> the watch supervisor at Kuala Lumpur ACC um, asked Malaysian Airlines Operations Center, which had claimed that they, which had said that they would exchange signals with this flight uh, once it was in Cambodian airspace. And so then Kuala Lumpur, Kuala Lumpur ACC then co- t- contacted Ho Chi Minh ACC again to ask whether the planned flight path for three, Flight 370 passed through Cambodian airspace. So basically, they just wanted to make sure that this was a planned flight for Flight 370, that they were supposed to be in Cambodian airspace. Um, see, this is why I said that this was confusing. Like, this, all yeah. this information is confusing. Yeah. Um, so basically, Ho Chi Minh ACC responded that flight 370 was not supposed to be in Cambodian airspace like it wasn't their planned flight path um and that they had already contacted the Cambodian airspace air controllers to tell them 
that this flight wasn't supposed to be there and to see if they could communicate with 370. They were unable to communicate with them. So nobody was able to communicate with 370. The Cambodian air, um, air controllers, Vietnamese, nobody. So basically what the Kuala Lumpur air traffic control people did was contact Asian Airlines Operations Center at 234 to see what the communication status was. So like if there was any issues, you know, Mm -hmm. on their part and basically they were informed that there was nothing wrong with their communication. Like it was in normal condition. So basically I guess like, like there was nothing wrong technically with the community, with like the conditions of the community, like with the conditions of how they communicate, like everything seemed to be working normally. So they're just flying around basically they're off flying the path yeah they're flying yeah exactly like they're flying off the path and they're not communicating there's no communication as to what's happening and what you know what i mean like it's just um and then uh so then later there was another malaysian airlines aircraft so this was flight 386 that was well, that was going to shanghai attempted to communicate with 370 again at the request of the Vietnamese airlines um, on the Lampar radar frequency, um, which was the last frequency used by 370 to make contact. Um, And then this attempt was, they were unable to do that. So it was unsuccessful. Um, And then at 3.30, so at this point, like two and a half hours have passed, um, Malaysian Airlines Operations Center then um basically malaysian airlines operations basically informs them that the information and the locations that they had provided earlier uh were actually based on flight projection and there it was just basically unreliable for accurate positioning of the plane so basically that information was given um and then over the next hour kuala lumpur acc contacted Ho Chi Minh ACC again asking whether they had talked to the Chinese air traffic control Um, and then at five Singapore air traffic control was asked for more information for any information that they had about flight 370 Um, and I guess Singapore was unable to maybe Singapore was able unable to give it but at 520 an undisclosed official might have been from Singapore. I don't know. Contacted Kuala Lumpur ACC request requesting information about flight 370. Later, when given that information, he said that Malaysian airlines 370 never left Malaysian airspace. So what? Yeah. So it, I don't know. <laughs> it's like the whole, that's like, the whole thing is very confusing. Like it's, there's differing and there's a little bit differing information um so then the watch supervisor at kuala lumpur acc activated the kuala lumpur aeronautical rescue coordination center arcc at 5 30. um the arcc is um it's basically a command post um that coordinates search and rescue activities when an aircraft is lost um and so they actually they, they did this four hours after communication was lost with flight 370. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to the Atlantic, according to the Atlantic, the, the Atlantic is not forgiving. Um, uh, and the, the, the article that I read from the Atlantic was not forgiving. And it basically was like the, the, that four hours 
was critical time that was basically misused. Like it was pretty much like nothing got done in those four hours. Um, so, mm -hmm. so basically there was as a result, because there's no communication, no one knows what this plane is. Um, it's a presumed loss. Mm -hmm. um, so then Malaysian Airlines issues a statement at 724, which is an, an hour after the flight through flight 370 was expected to arrive at Beijing. Um, and they stated that communication with the flight had been lost at 240 and that the government had began search and rescue operations. Um, the the time when contact was lost was later corrected to 1.21 p.m. So they first got it wrong and oh, then boy. they corrected it. Um, which, as we saw, is, is actually true. Like, that is actually when they lost um, communication. Mm -hmm. um, and so the interesting thing is that neither crew nor the, nor the plane um, itself was able, uh, you know, the, its communication systems gave a distress call. Um, there was also no indications of bad weather um, or any technical issues. So basically, it's just kind of vanished off the radar screens. Like there was really no apparent precedent for it. That is so weird. Yeah. Um, and then on March 24th, which um, I guess was like 16 days later. Am I really, am I bad at math? No. <laughs> I don't know. No, eight, eight, 18 days later. My bad. No. It was, I was right the first time, 16 days later. Um, sorry guys, I'm not good at math. Um, Malaysian Prime Minister Najim, Najib Razak um, gave a press conference and at like, I guess 22 local time, which is, should be 10 p.m. Um, he gave a statement regarding the flight. Um, and he said that he had been briefed by the Air Accidents Instigate Investigation Branch um that it and in marsat the satellite data provider which is actually i think a london-based data sa satellite data provider had basically come to the conclusion that the plane's last position before it fell off the radars was in the southern indian ocean oh lord and since there was really no place that it could have landed the aircraft therefore crashed into the sea jesus um yeah so then, um, basically, as soon as they, as soon as the world, or I guess Malaysian Airlines and you know, um, Malaysia realized what you know what they had on their hands, they began search and rescue efforts in the Southeast Asian region. Pretty soon after the flight disappeared, um, so after the initial analysis. Uh, the communications to the aircrafts and the satellites, uh, the surface search was moved towards the Indian Ocean about one week after the aircraft's disappearance. And so from between March 18th to 28th of April, um, there were 19 vessels um, and 345 sorties, which I have no idea what that is. I got this straight from Wikipedia. Um, from military aircrafts, and they search over 4,600,000 kilometers. Or if you're an American and you don't know what kilometers are, I don't. 
Uh, it was a million eight hundred thousand square miles. Oh my goodness! So that is how that is how much they searched. Um, and so the final phase of the search was a bathymetric survey or a bathymetric survey. I don't know. But basically, that is the study of underwater ocean, depths of ocean floors and lake floors. So it's kind of like studying the topography of the ocean. Um, and sonar search of the seafloor, about 1,800 kilometers or 970 nautical miles um, or 1,100 miles for us of us, those of us on land um, in the southwest of Perth, Western Australia. Um, and then on the 30th of March of 2014, there was a search coordinated by the Joint Agency Coordination Center, or JACC, J-A-C-C, <laughs> which is an Australian government agency, which, by the way, like, Australia provided a lot of help to Malaysian, to, like, Malaysia during this time, which I thought was pretty cool, uh, because mm -hmm. Malaysia didn't have the means to do that, so Australia actually helped a lot. Um, so a lot of these, uh, groups i guess were from australia mm -hmm. um and so jack um they were established uh to manage the effort to locate this flight um and this the jack was basically like the malaysian chinese and australian government working together um so they didn't really find much during those search efforts um so on the 7th so on January 17, 2017, um the official search for the flight um was suspended because it had uh there was basically no evidence found of the aircraft um other than some like marine debris that was found like off the coast of Africa. Um interestingly enough though, um this the search, the official search for this flight, for this plane, sorry. Uh, was the most expensive search operation in all of aviation history. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so the final ATSB report, which uh, ATSB stands for, hold on, I'm trying to find what the acronym stands for. Uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau. Um basically the ATSB report which was later published on October 3rd of 2017 um, basically stated that the the search, the underwater search of the aircraft had cost 155 million US dollars wow. um, and that the search accounted for 86% of those millions and then um 4% was pro, uh, the management, and then the bathymetry survey was 10%. Um, and Malaysia had basically given 58% of that cost. Um, and then Australia gave 32%, which is a big chunk. And yeah. then China gave 10% because China's always got to... China's always got to give a little help. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is why America hates them. Oh yeah. yeah, we're in massive debt. Oh yeah. Um, anyway, so the uh, so 
basically what the report concluded was that they had narrowed down the aircraft to an area of 25,000 kilometers squared or 9,700 square miles, um, which is, I guess it's better than like the million they were searching um, in the beginning, but that's still a lot of, you know, unsearched terrain. Yeah. Um, but then in January 2018, sorry, there were also like, um, there were also private excavation i guess not i guess excavation would be the word but there was like private recovery efforts um Mm -hmm. there's one company that is american companies because americans always got to stick their business nose in other people's business um (laughs) but it was a private american um marine exploration company called ocean infinity and they started their research um in that to 25,000 kilometer area that was mentioned previously and they used a Norwegian ship and they searched and searched and searched um, but unfortunately it was unsuccessful and they suspended those search efforts on June 9th of 2018 um, however I actually didn't know this I thought that they had not found any debris at all but they actually did find some debris of this plane in uh, 2017. They found, they by 2017, sorry, October 2017, they had actually found 20 pieces of debris that was oh. believed to belong to this, to this plane. And it had been recovered on the beaches of the Indian Ocean. Um, so 18 of the pieces were identified as very likely or almost certainly belonging to Flight 370. Um, well, the other two were, like, probably from the aircraft, but, like, we don't really know. Um, so the first, and I think probably the most significant piece of, um, debris that was found was what is called a flapperon, which is basically, like, you know, on the plane, the wings, the, Mm -hmm. the things that kind of, like, lift up and then go down as, like, the, yeah, so that's Mm -hmm. a flapperon, um, and it was discovered in Ju- late July 2015. And it was on a beach in Saint-André-Réunion, which is oh. an island in Western Indian Ocean. And I believe it is a department of France. Uh-huh. Um, so it was found on one of those beaches. And it was transported from Réunion um, to <laughs> Toulouse, where it was examined by France's Civil uh, Aviation Accident Investigation Agency. Um, and the only reason why I included this is so that I could speak in French. Yep. Uh, so yep. let me impress y'all with my French. Okay. Um, the Bureau d'Enquête et d'Analyse pour la Sécurité de la... Oh, crap. I messed it up. Let me try it again. Okay. <laughs> the Bureau d'Enquête et d'Analyse pour la Sécurité de l'Aviation Civile, or BEA. There we go. Or, sorry, BEA. Oui, oui. oui. Yes, that is my $50,000 French master's degree from Middlebury College at work, y'all. Just Hell kidding. Yeah. I actually cry when I pay off those student loan payments oh, every yeah. month, so it's actually not I worth it. I feel you. But it's okay. I feel you there. The irony is that I'm a Spanish teacher. I literally have no use for that degree. It's actually really sad. Anyway. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, France analyzed that debris. And then Malaysia sent its own investigators to Réunion and Toulouse. Um, And basically, by September 2015, France confirmed that the serial numbers on the flapperon matched 
the ones that would have been on flight 370. So this is a verified piece of debris. Um, and so then after this discovery, of course, France sent people back to this part of Réunion to see if they uh, could found, find more stuff. And they did find a damaged suitcase that was related to this, that could have been linked to this flight. Oh, no. Um, and so the location of the discovery, so the location on this on this part of Réunion, is pretty consistent with um, models of debris dispersal, which kind of blows my mind just how science is. It's like you can, by studying, I guess, like the ocean. I'm going to sound really stupid in a second. But <laughs> like studying the waves of the ocean and seeing how the ocean carries debris and how like certain debris floats and other things don't flow and how like weight just fit so much physics at play i just think that's fascinating mm-hmm. um so it's really cool how they were able to see how based on how debris and how types of debris would float it makes sense that they would land on this part of the island you yeah. know so that's pretty cool that's um, amazing. yeah and so also they also knew that it was like 16 months after um you know after the disappearance and stuff. So they were able to calculate it and they were like, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty likely that this belonged to this plane. They also found, so like in their search, actually, sorry. So, um, so then they actually went searching in other places as well, like off the coast, West coast of Australia and something, other things that were found was a Chinese water bottle Mm. on Indonesian cleaning product. Um, they also found parts of the right stabilizer and right wing. I do not know what a stabilizer is. I'm going to assume it stabilizes the plane. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to assume. Wild guess. Yeah. Um, and the right wing. I know what that is. The right wing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, they found part those parts. Um, and let's see. So, in February 2016, they found an object that had, like, a stenciled label called No Step um, that was found off the coast of Mozambique. Um, and then there's photos that suggest that it could have come from the aircraft's horizontal stabilizer or from the edges of one of the wings. Um, and then in December, 2015, there was a guy named Liam, Liam, sorry, I call him Liam, Liam Lotter. He had found a piece of gray debris on the beach in Southern Mozambique, but, um, Sorry, so there okay, sorry. So there was a guy, my bad. His name was I think Blaine Gibson who found the piece in 2016. So he found like the the no step piece and it was like big news, it was big news. So basically, after Liam Lauter found out about um Gibson's find of the stabilizer he then decides to report to basically turn it in. So he had found it in December of 2015, but it wasn't until three months later where he found out about Gibson's find that he was like, Oh, I should probably report this. Um, um, so he alerted, Oh, sorry. His family alerted authorities. Mm. And then the, the piece was then flown to Australia. Um, uh, and they carried a stenciled code six, seven, six EB, which was, um, actually identified as part of a Boeing seven, seven, seven flap track fairing which i don't know what that means um and the (laughs) style the lettering style was matched to those used by malaysian airlines 
So making it basically certain. Like they can't say, they say that because they can't say, oh, we're 100% sure. But mm. it's pretty certain. Yeah. Um, they also found other debris um, off the island of Réunion. Um, you know, they found a unidentified gray item with a blue border. Um, also an archaeologist called Niels Kruger found another piece of gray debris on a beach near Mossel Bay, South Africa, which had an undeniable partial logo of a Rolls Royce, which apparently was the manufacturer of the engines on 370. Mm. Um, And then the Malaysian Ministry of Transport later acknowledged that this piece could be that of an engine cowling. Um... Uh, and then yeah there was like little pieces so they're basically little pieces of debris found on basically pieces of land that bordered the South Indian Ocean um, mm-hmm. so also in Mauritius Mauritius I am I'm really sorry I feel stupid yeah I feel stupid but anyway <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds right I'm sure someone will correct me it's fine I'm open to learning um so yeah so basically debris but there's no black boxes nothing that really explains what happened Mm -hmm. it's just basically confirmation that it went into the indian ocean essentially which i think i i thought that the indian ocean was the biggest ocean but i actually believe it's the pacific ocean yeah i think it's the pacific that's the biggest yeah but um but yeah so um yeah, so looking into possible causes, it's actually really interesting. If you go on Wikipedia, there actually is a whole page dedicated to possible theories wow. of why Flight 370 went missing. Um, the ones that the Wikipedia page for Flight 370 gave were, I think, were the most realistic ones. But mm-hmm. some of them, like, some of them range from, like, North Korea bombing... <laughs> Malaysian Airlines 370 there's an or maybe hijacking there's another one where it was like a cyber attack mm. they were um just like different reasons obviously varying from realistic to least most realistic to least realistic um but some of the possible causes were a power interruption so it's possible that um there was a power interruption in um in that was that went on the plane so um the satcom which is what they call satellite communication link um was found to be functioning normally pre-flight um around 12 a.m malaysian time during the day of the flight until it responded to ground to air a cars which is the aircraft communication addressing and reporting system um, with an acknowledged message at 1-7. So ground-to-air ACARS messages were being transmitted to Flight 370 um, until Inmarsat's network um, sent multiple requests for acknowledgement messages at 2-3, at 2-0-3, and they didn't receive a response. So basically, at some point from 1-0-7 a.m. to 2-0-3, power was lost to the satellite data unit. Um, and then, however, at 225, the aircraft satellite data unit sent a logon request. Um, and it's not uncommon for a logon request to be made in flight. The thing that made this weird was that um, 
that it could occur for different reasons and an analysis of the characteristics and the timing of these requests um, may, suggests that there was a power interruption in flight. So that was like, mm. the, that was the most likely culprit as to why these logon requests were being sent in flight. Um, there's also, believe, another theory is unresponsive crew or hypoxia. So hypoxia is, I believe it's when, so basically like when you're flying, the cabin has to be pressurized because there is like the oxygen, um, there's not, there's not a lot of oxygen up 35,000 feet in the air. So you have to, um, you have to pressurize the cabin. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens. So basically what happens is when the plane is found to have maybe like a leak or like the, it's being like, it's, it's losing pressure. Um, that's when like the oxygen masks go down and mm. you have to actually, it, it really feels like you're dying. And I'm, I'm sure that anyone who's been in a plane where like the oxygen masks go down probably feels like, Oh my God, we're going to die. But what the plane is really doing is it's going down to an altitude um, it's going down to an altitude where there is actually like oxygen saturation and usually mm-hmm. that's like 10,000 feet and you mm-hmm. really only have a certain amount of time to get there which is why it feels like it's like a nosedive mm-hmm. into because it really is you only have like 10 minutes to get there before mm-hmm. um, you start experience and because you only have like I think you only have like 10 minutes worth of oxygen in there and that's what that is like it's giving you oxygen until you get to an altitude where you don't need them anymore and then you make Mm -hmm. an emergency landing so it feels scary in the moment and i'm sure it is scary but it's not necessarily dangerous it's just kind of like you have to do that before everybody kind of like blacks out and dies um Mm -hmm. so basically one of the beliefs was that perhaps this is what had happened because um if every if the crew is unresponsive or if the crew has been hit with hypoxia the plane would kind of like fly on its own because it's on autopilot until mm-hmm. it like ran out of fuel and then oh. just kind of like dived down. Yeah. Um, okay. So the Australian Transport Safety Bureau or ATSB was comparing the evidence that was available for Flight 370 with three different categories of accidents, um, which is an in-flight upset, which is like a stall, um, which is basically when like the I guess like the plane just kind of like stops in the middle of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um and you can't really like get it to recalibrate. Um, and then a glide event, which is like an example would be like an engine failure or fuel exhaustion, and then an unresponsive crew or hypoxia event. And so basically what the ATSB concluded was that the unresponsive crew or hypoxia event best fit with the evidence that was given during the five hour period of the flight as it traveled south over the Indian Ocean without communication. And probably was most likely on autopilot. Um, however, there's no consensus about this, like this theory. So it's not like everybody agrees on it. Um, so um, it says here, though, that if no control inputs were made during flameout, which I have no idea what that is, and the disengagement of autopilot, the so basically, if no, I, if no control inputs were made following flameout and the disengagement of autopilot. So basically, if no one did anything, um, the plane would have likely entered a spiral dive, which sounds terrifying. Yes. Um, and would have entered the ocean within 20 nautical miles. Um, yeah. So does this mean that the the um, 
that the cabin would have they everyone on the plane would have been passed out and the plane was just on autopilot and eventually yeah. they ran out of fuel and then spiraled into the ocean yeah because okay. yeah because it's because the reason why they the reason why they tell you to put the oxygen mask first before you put it on your child is because it really i think only takes like 30 seconds to like a minute for you to pass out from ox from like lack of oxygen Mm-hmm. so yeah so it is and it is something that happens very quickly so it mm-hmm. is possible like if that's what you know what i'm saying like it is possible so um the analysis of the flapper on remember i told you the little flapper on the wing mm-hmm. so they they analyzed that and it showed that the landing flaps were not extended um which supports that idea of the spiral dive at the high speed mm-hmm um so it supports that theory because they weren't extended um and then in may 2018 the atsb again asserted that the flight was not in control when it crashed um so basically no there was no attempt to land on water like there was no attempt to control the plane whatsoever it was just rogue at that point Mm. um and so the spokesperson of atsb said and i quote we have quite a bit of data to tell us that the aircraft, if it was being controlled at the end, it wasn't very successfully being controlled. Um, so yeah. then there's also other causes for the disappearance. Like there was believed to be passenger involvement. They actually found that there were two men um, who had stolen passports that were on the flight 370. Um, and these stolen passports had actually been reported to Interpol um, and it was, oh, um, yeah, and I didn't know this, but apparently when passports get stolen, they could be listed on a stolen and lost travel documents database by Interpol. Um, and there had been no check made against the database when the, since the passports were reported stolen. Um, they was, there was one Austrian passport and one Italian passport, and they were reported to be stolen in Thailand uh, it, within like two years of the, like before, two years before the accident. Um, and so the Malaysian home minister kind of criticized the immigration officials of his own country for failing to stop these people that had, um, the stolen passports. They actually found that these two people were, um, were from Iran and they had purchased two one-way tickets, um, and they were booked through the China Southern Airlines and... They were booked via telephone in Bangkok, Thailand, and they were paid with cash. Okay, that um, sounds sketchy AF. Yes. So one person was 19, the other person was 29. Um, so, but basically, these these men were later believed to be, they were believed to be asylum seekers. So, okay, yeah. That's yeah, they were, yeah, so they were seeking <laughs> asylum. Um, and Interpol, basically, after researching and doing everything, they kind of concluded that this was not a terrorist incident. Um, it's just basically two people looking for a better life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the Chinese government checked their own citizens and that were on the flight and they ruled out the possibility of terrorist attacks as well. Um, there was one guy who, there's one passenger, sorry, who did work as a flight engineer for a Swiss jet company who was briefly under suspicion just because he had some aviation experience, but he was later, um, you know what's the word cleared ruled out <laughs> yes cleared, ruled yeah. out. um there's also belief for crew involvement so this is actually one of the more popular beliefs theories in um 
in, on Reddit, which is basically like someone hijacked the plane. Mm. Um, so they, U.S. officials believe that the most likely explanation is that one of the pilots hijacked the plane, um, and that the co- and that someone in the cockpit reprogrammed the autopilot to travel south um, to the Indian Ocean. Um, Why? Poli- oh, I don't know. That's just that's <laughs> just right. what they think. Um, and then the police, uh, I guess the Malaysia police, search the homes of the pilots and they seize financial records of all the twelve crew members. Um, and basically, the Malaysian police inspector general uh, said that more than one hundred seventy interviews had been made investigating family members. Um. And the media reports claim that the Malaysian police had identified Captain Zahari as a prime su- suspect. I think if they did decide that human intervention was would eventually be proven, he would be the prime suspect. Uh, the FBA, the FBI, reconstructed uh, deleted data from Captain Zahari's home flight simulator, um, but the Malaysian government says that there's nothing sinister found on it. Um, and that they kind of they stand by their they stand by that there was no evidence of recent or significant financial transactions. Um, but however, in 2016, a leaked American document stated that on route that a route on the pilot's home flight simulator, which closely matched the projected flight over the Indian Ocean, was found during the FBI analyses 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 of mm-hmm. um, the flight simulator's computer hard drive. This was confirmed by the ATSB, um, and it was also confirmed by the Malaysian government. However, this does not prove that the pilot was involved. So basically, the government, the Malaysian government, and the Australian government don't believe that the pilots were involved. Um, and finally, the last one, which could possibly happen, is um, there were lithium-ion batteries on board, and this is this is actually they this actually was they did have lithium-ion ion batteries on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and lithium-ion batteries are known to cause intense fires if they do overheat and ignite, um, which is actually why there are strict regulations on their um, transport via airplanes Mm, Um, that's why like on whenever i fly they'll i'll see like restrictions on like lithium batteries yeah which kind of scares me because i'm like i know i'm not bringing lithium batteries but what if there's some idiot next to me bringing lithium batteries what is how like what is what's a common ion that has a lithium battery (sighs) i don't know like my face washer has a lithium battery oh shit yeah, but I don't bring it on airplanes. But yeah, if someone doesn't know and they're not yeah. thinking, laptops have lithium batteries sometimes. What the fuck? I brought my laptop on planes before. I think it's maybe maybe like more cargo because like if it's like a carry on, because um, pl- planes have fire extinguishers like in in the planes. Mm. So if there's mm-hmm. a, there if there's a fire on board. Like if your laptop laptop catches on fire, there's just you know an uh a stu- an air stewardess is gonna come over with their little 
you know, oh, yeah. fire extinguisher and extinguish it out. But the issue is when it catches on fire in the cargo area, how are you going to know the fire's, the plane's on fire until it's too late? Yeah. I think that's the issue. I think the carry-on is the issue. Mm. You mean the cargo? Yes. That's what I'm talking okay. about. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So, that is Flight 370. That's all I got for Flight 370. Um, however, like I was saying before, the Atlantic article was sort of going in on the Malaysian government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to finish reading it to see if there's anything else I can add to this. But... Um, Basically, what what they were, what the article was saying was that um, there was a lot of things that were not done correctly at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That I don't know if like necessarily would have saved the plane, but it would have at least answered more questions for us. Yeah. Um. And then. Yeah, um, would have answered more questions for us. Um, and then also, apparently, and this is not this is the article saying this. I'm not saying this because I don't actually know a lot about what's going on. But apparently, um, the Malaysian government was not with. What's the what's the word I'm looking for? Was not was a little bit withholding with their information, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. basically at the beginning the initial searches weren't accurate because they weren't given correct information and they were basically searching in the wrong place. Um so yeah. Um so yeah, so it's mm. it's really scary because as someone who hates flying, this mm-hmm. is like my worst nightmare. And I hate flying overseas. Yes, me too. I hate flying overseas and I don't know. Like, it's just really scary. And Grant, however, to put things into perspective, flying is still the safest form of transportation. Mm-hmm. Thousands of flights go out every every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these are just, like, unfortunately, like, people's lives were lost. But yeah, it's still the safest form of flying. There's still so much regulations. And mm-hmm. after every incident like this, you know they learn from it yeah you they learn from it um so and the one thing that like i mean this isn't reassuring because like you said because people died anyways but Mm. i personally like not that i'm like an aviation forensics expert or anything like that but it makes the most sense to me that it was just a freak hypoxia incident and that everyone had passed out and then the flight in the plane just like crash into the water and so i'm thinking that they were by the time the plane was like spiraling and nose diving into the indian ocean folks were passed out anyways they were probably, probably already are, dead they were probably yeah i was gonna dead. say like they yeah. were probably already dead yeah. and so that idea that you're gonna be and probably like sorry i don't want to like make you even more scared but probably like even if you are on a plane that crashes, you'll probably be dead before it crashes anyways. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. I'm counting on that. Yeah. So, like, that's the one thing. Like, you'll probably pass out from, like, loss of oxygen. And so you won't experience, like, the act that, you know. I hope if that were to ever happen to me, God forbid, I hope I die of a heart attack first. Yeah. Yeah. No, that for the thing is, like, the thing was what makes flying scary is the thing is like all of these images come in your head and you're like, what if, what if, what if? 
Mm-hmm. And like the pilot is probably just like hunky Chilling. dory like at the front and you're over here like clenching your butthole and like mm-hmm. sweating and like like when I like when I look at my Fitbit when or when I had a Fitbit or when I look at my Apple Watch like how my heart races like on a flight like it's crazy yeah it's like um because like the thing is is like uh like my therapist will say that anxiety is like a tricky bitch Mm -hmm. because when you figured out like a way to counter your anxiety like she just comes up with different ways to like to just like pop up and be like hey it's me and like for me it's like I don't normally like I don't consider myself to be someone who has a flight phobia Mm -hmm. but when I get on a plane my anxiety just comes up with horrific things that could happen on the plane yeah um and, and like overthinks every little like small thing that happens yeah like or anything the flight attendants do that I feel like is weird. Um, I overthink it. And so hearing yeah. things like the Malaysian Airlines stuff, like, mm-hmm. doesn't, certainly does yeah. not help. Like when, all, like, when all the flight attendants are, like, huddled at the front and you're like, oh, my God, what's happening? Yeah. And they're probably well, literally just, like, gossiping and, like, bitching about their jobs. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I remember one time, um, the last time I was on a plane. Uh, I was looking at I was at, I was in first class because I decided if I'm gonna be a flying and I'm gonna be in an anxiety inducing situation I might as well be as comfortable as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, well, it turns out it wasn't that comfortable because I had to like put all my carry ons into the overhead bin because I got the first row. So I did not look into that. So it wasn't that comfortable because I didn't have any of my shit with me. Anyways, <laughs> um. So, so I was watching, because you know how, like, the flight attendants do the little um, thing to, like, talk to each other? Mm-hmm. So, like, th- I guess they were having, like, they used that to talk to each other, and they kept doing it. They kept being, like, boom, and I could see the flight attendant, like, looking intensely at the other end of the plane, and then continuously clicking the boom, and I'm like, what, sir? what's going on but then i think it was literally probably something but then it stopped and it, but it was happening like as the plane was taking off which would made it so much worse and i was like oh fuck like it's happening but that's like and that's the annoying part is like that's how they communicate though like that yeah that's how they communicate like it's like it could literally be like oh we're out of ginger ale and it's like oh beep okay i'm on my way beep cool but the yeah, good, like it, yeah yeah but the good literally thing, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say like it literally could have been the pilot like, "Hey, is there any like, is there any coffee?" Boop, and then they're like, yeah. "Oh yeah, what kind of cream do you want?" Boop, uh, international <laughs> delight. Boop, we don't have an international delight. We only have coffee uh, mate. Coffee mate. Boop. Okay, I'll t- like it could have been something <laughs> like that. Coffee mate gives me the runs. I'll take it black. Beep. <laughs> Boop on the way. Like. <laughs> And I'm over here thinking like it's an emer- like this oh my god like going we're going down yeah we're going down don't yeah. tell the don't tell the cabin. Well, the good thing yeah. about flying is that most people want to survive. Yeah, that's and that's why if I ever become famous, like let's say our podcast takes off and mm-hmm. we're flying all over the place talking to people, I will never get on a private plane. Nope, ever. 
I don't care how much more convenient it is because I've like, and then you know, private planes crash a hell of a lot more than commercial flights do. So I will never, I don't care if I'm the most famous person in the world. I'm never getting a, like a, fa- like a private jet. That's not a flex for me. I will mm-hmm. be flying commercial and I'll just get first class because the yeah. pilot has, and everyone has an interest like, and it's regulated and everyone has an interest to like, say like keep everyone alive on board you know yeah do you remember okay this is totally random but do you remember um do you remember bow wow yeah do you remember when he posted on instagram a picture of his private jet i don't and okay so he he was on a a regular commercial flight and then he took (laughs) He took oh. he took a picture of a private jet and was like, he he took a he's posted a picture of a private jet and was like, I'm off to whatever I don't know just some random post, and then the person next to him, sitting next <laughs> to him, was like, I guess like saw that he had posted that, and then he took a picture of Bow Wow on the commercial flight next to him and was like, this man's flexing being on a private jet and he's staying on the same <laughs> flight as me. I don't know. It was really funny. I just thought about that. That is so embarrassing. Just just embrace it. Bow Wow actually like, has like a lot of embarrassing moments on the internet. Yeah. He like, yeah. Cause now whenever I think of Bow Wow, I just think of him constantly taking L's on social media. Like <laughs> stop it, sir. But you kind of deserve it though. Like why would you just lie? Why lie? Like just why lie about that? When you could quickly get caught. That's yeah. what doesn't make sense to me. Why lie? Like, yeah. Don't, like, don't be embarrassed by it. It's fine. Like. It's better for the environment. Just be like, um, it's better for the Leonardo DiCaprio takes commercial flights. Samuel L. Jackson, mm-hmm. he takes commercial flights. Missy Elliott Samuel... takes commercial flights. Yeah. So you get to be with the people. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I don't know. All I know is that if I ever get famous enough where I have to, like, fly somewhere like on a regular basis i'm getting uh i'm getting a personal prescription of xanax (laughs) i want to be knocked the f out there's actually people there's actually people who are so scared of flying that they are that they have like an an on-site nurse like they have a nurse that goes with them and flies like a travel nurse that flies with them and it's basically like drug them enough where they're knocked out and then like the nurse is there just to check their vital signs (laughs) I would me. do that. I would do that. I'd yeah. be like, give me all the barbiturates. Not quite enough to make me die, but like, I just want to be knocked thing, out. Yeah. The shitty thing about me is that I'm like afraid of taking those type of medications. So like, I'm just shit out of luck. Like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid not. of taking barbiturates. Um, I, I will say that Dramamine, the dra- like the drowsy kind does knock me out. Because when we went to London, yeah. the minute I took that, I was out. Yeah. Like, I tried to start watching Shape of Water. I didn't even finish. I kept trying to, like, wake up and, like, turn it back on. I fall back asleep. Yeah. So, Dramamine might be the move for me. I take Dramamine and I take Xanax and I'm out like a light. Yeah, that's really, that's really all. Like, that's really what you have to do. Yeah, that's, otherwise. Yeah. That's what got me through my flight from Paris to here to D.C. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Ooh, that was. That was rough. And anyway, look out the window. Yes. Because you'll just see blue. And then you'll poop yourself. Okay. <laughs> um, Kristen, what's your story? 
All right. Okay, so let me let me queue up let me queue up my notes over here. All right. So my story is about the haunted convent and former leprosy colony on Shaka Shakari Island in Trinidad. Ooh. And I hope to God that I'm pronouncing Shaka Shaka Shakari Island. I deeply apologize to the people of Trinidad and Tobago. Um, I tried looking it up, but I forgot because I wrote this story earlier. Is this going to be scary because it's 1130 and I have to cook later? Uh, Well. Okay, it's fine. Just say You already did it. It's fine. (laughs) But remember how we (laughs) talked about recording these stories earlier in the day? Yeah. Okay. Next time, let us commit to 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 er, to earlier. recording earlier in the day. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's my fault though. I set this time. Okay. Anyway, and I'll just, do my okay. I'll, I'll do my do best to make it as lighthearted as possible. Okay. Um. Okay. So Shaka, fuck. I've already fucked up the name. Shaka Shakari Island is a small island in Trinidad and Tobago, located about seven miles from the coast of Venezuela. Ooh. It was. Yeah, it was originally inhabited by indigenous North Americans until Christopher Columbus's colonizing ass showed up in 1498. And yeah, he fucked around the island and tried to like call it like the island of the cats or something because his dumb ass heard monkeys and thought they were cats. So he called it like Port Port Cat or whatever in Portuguese or I'm sorry. I don't know. Is he from Portugal? No, he's Italian. Okay. Yeah. Fuck him. Anyways, between 1777 and 1794, uh, cotton plantations were set up on the islands by the Spaniards, and the island also served as a whaling station hmm. where where people hunt for whales, because I didn't realize that was what whaling was. <laughs> so I put that in parentheses for myself. Um, so the island came under British control in 1797. Creoles from Santo Domingo settled around the island during the French Revolution. So, so a couple of fun facts about Shaka Shakari Island. Um, it played a role in the Venezuelan Revolution. Um, Santiago Mariño used the island as a base for the 1813 invasion of Venezuela, and his sister, Concepcion Mariño, was involved in the Venezuelan War of Independence from her estate on Shaka Shakari Island. Hmm. Uh, so by 1814, I'm gonna Google Shaka Shakari Island. You go ahead. I just want to know what this place looks like. <laughs> um, by 1814, a small population of lepers settled in the Labantil Hills and would wander the streets during the day. And so this caused officials um, to kind of start discussing establishing a leper colony on the island because they were worried about them mingling with the general population that they would be spreading you know, leprosy everywhere. Um, but eventually the, the project was scrapped because there were too many people living on the island at the time and it was too expensive to compensate um, the general population for, uh, like, for leaving their homes. So they scrapped it. Um, but then, starting in 1842, almost 10 years after slavery was abolished in British-owned colonies, Indian, Chinese, and Portuguese immigrants were brought to Trinidad to rectify a labor shortage. And they were enticed by the promise of five acres of land if they came to work on the island for five years. So they were essentially entering into indentured servitude. Um, so within the influx of immigrants... So basically like came, slavery with like 
glitz and glamour. Yeah. And also the article I read, uh, I had to probably, sh- I should probably follow up on this, but I'm pretty sure they, I don't know if they got their land. I have to look that up. Um, would be too far from the whole 40 acres and a mule situation. So. Yeah. Um, so with the influx of immigrants came more cases of leprosy. So eventually the British colonizers became so concerned at the rising numbers of leprosy that they bought an armory at Kokorit on the coast of Trinidad and officially established a leper colony on that site. And in 1868, the government invited nuns from the St. Catherine of Siena Church in the Dominican Republic to run the leper colony, or it's called a leprosarium. Fifteen nuns Hmm. came over to take care of the leprosy patients. And containing the disease was difficult because many of the patients would just up and leave the leprosarium and then spread the disease elsewhere in Trinidad. (laughs) So, um, So the nuns caring for the patients were plagued by misfortune. In 1869, nine of the nuns died during a yellow fever epidemic um, and were buried um, at... La Peru Cemetery in Trinidad and replacement nuns would arrive a few years later but then most of them would die as well due to yellow fever or other maladies um, and they also caught leprosy as well um, and so by 1839 very few of the original sisters survived um, and leprosy and, and disease were pretty much one of many risks that the nuns faced the work was extremely difficult. The heat of Trinidad was nearly unbearable. Um, and like I said before, illnesses from insects and all of the, and all of the other places uh, claimed the lives of many of the sisters. And so by 1915, an international conference concluded that they had to take a stricter stance on containing the spread of leprosy. So the, Trinidad, the Trinidadian government mandated that leprosy patients be confined either to their homes or else they would be taken to the leper colony on Kokorit by force. So uh, eventually, even that mandate was ineffective. Um, so the government then relocated the leprosarium to Shakashikari, and the government established a hospital, a bakery, and patient cottages between 1922 and 1926. And then these patients were then forced to move there, and the leper colony at Kokorit was burned to the ground. In 1926, a new convent was established um, on Shakashikari, and within months after the new convent was established, 10 sisters died. Many of the sisters would later contract leprosy or die of other illnesses. And by But 19- I mean, like, nuns aren't superhuman like of course yeah. they're going to contract these diseases you know, yeah and i'm not in- ppe exactly exactly that's what i was about to say like i'm not entirely sure what type of support they were being given um in order to because i was reading and leprosy is spread through sneezing ew yeah so, <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah so i'm not sure like what what support they were being given in order to not get leprosy themselves. Um, but there, there was a lot expected, like they were expected to do a lot as nuns. Um, 
So by 1945. But here's you, the thing, though, like nuns. But like, what were the? I, I honestly feel like it. It probably was like these are women that have dedicated their lives to God, and mm-hmm. one of the tenets of being a nun is like service. And so I'm sure it's True. just kind of like taking advantage of women mm-hmm. that their sole job, they believe that their sole purpose in this life is to serve God and serving God by serving others. And so I'm sure that it had, it was a mixture of like sexism and just kind of like taking advantage of like free labor and like not mm-hmm. giving, because like, that's the thing, like where are the priests in this? Hell yeah, exactly. Um, that's actually a very good point. Um, because... There, like I said, there was a lot expected of the nuns. I didn't read anything about no damn priests. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was basically all this work was expected to be done by the nuns. Um, and so by 1945, new drugs were introduced that successfully treated leprosy. Um, but the process was slow and painful. And the population of the land was 338 in 1945. And by 1950, it grew to 500. So these these nurses are taking care of 500 um, patients with leprosy. And while the number of patients grew, they began outpacing the number of nuns who could take care of them. So like we were just talking about, they're expected to perform backbreaking work. Um, And around this time, their responsibilities grew even more. The nuns were literally expected by the Trinidadian government um, to receive nursing training. Well, obviously, if they're like taking care of like lepers. So they received nursing training, but not only that, but they also made them become dentists. So they received dental training. Um, And there were also... um, It's kind of similar to how I feel like as a teacher. Yeah, just no supports, but lots of responsibility and expectations. Yeah, I have like a bajillion certifications. Yeah, for different, many different things. You're probably, yeah, expected to be like therapist, parent, all of that. I have like diabetes certification or have like a, some sort of diabetes certification EpiPen certification CPR certification mm. yeah yeah mental it, health certification yeah and yeah, I didn't yeah. like specifically take notes on this but like um there was like not only while this all this stuff is happening the leprosy patients were also like uprising and like protesting the Trinidadian government because mm-hmm. They didn't like the control um, and the isolation. Um, so they even started protesting and the nurses got caught up in that. Oh, um, so, no. Yeah. So eventually it became too much. So eventually all but one of the nuns left the colony in 1955. Um, so once okay. this happened, government nurses then showed up to take care of the patients. And then, so way, way fast forward. On July 24th, 1984, the leper colony was closed and the remaining patients returned to Trinidad. So the 80s seems like really late for that to have happened. Right. I thought that leper colonies were a thing of like, you know, way, way past. I thought it was like biblical. Like I thought leper colonies were like biblical. Yeah. Like those times. Yep. Dang. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they used to have leper colonies in the 80s. That is crazy. Um, All right, so let's get to the spooky stuff. Oh, Lord. So so today, Shakashikari Island is uninhabited except for a Hindu temple 
which was founded in 1945. Um, oh, one fun fact that I thought was interesting. Um, cause I was looking up on Wikipedia and the ethnic makeup of Trinidad and Tobago, it's like 34% Indian and like 34% African. So there's a lot of Indians. Uh, this is like, obviously I'm just getting in on this. Like this mm-hmm. is obviously common knowledge to people who are from the area, but I just thought that like, th- I just thought that was interesting. Um, I think the only thing I know about Trinidad is that I think, isn't Nicki Minaj, this family from yeah. there? That's like the mm-hmm. only thing I know about Trinidad. Yeah. Which is a shame. It's, and I I completely am aware of my ignorance, but that's literally the only thing I know about it. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was that that also explains why there is a Hindu well, not that there shouldn't or wouldn't be a Hindu temple, but it makes sense that there was a large population of people who descended from India right. and why they have an, a Hindu temple. So um, is this like So I guess when you mean like it's inhabit it's it's uninhabited is like there's no one living there yeah nobody lives there um except for i guess people who go to this hindu temple Uh, maybe like monks yeah do hindu temples have monks or like i guess the hindu equivalent of a yeah i'm pretty ignorant on hindu honestly but i would could imagine it's probably for the hindu equivalent of a monk to go and worship or yeah okay <laughs> yeah um okay See, there's so, something really unsettling about an uninhabited place piece of land yeah it's very yeah it is very unsettling and um i'll talk about this a little bit later but i watched um because there's a ghost hunters international episode where they go here mm. and it looks creepy as hell like it looks very creepy and there's snakes but they made sure to emphasize that the snakes were poisoned uh, or not poisonous and i was like i don't give a fuck if it's not poisonous <laughs> or, like who cares like it's a snake the fuck anyways um but yeah it looks creepy as hell uh Dang. okay so in the 1990s the trinidadian coast guard actually used the old leprosarium buildings as living quarters and administrative offices but they abandoned the buildings within six months due to claims of the island being haunted so they made claims of while they were in bed feeling like they were being held down or something Mm. yeah and like they and then whenever they would go up steps like someone was pushing them like some invisible hand was pushing them up steps um so they said fuck it and just left um and the most widely known ghost that haunts the island is that of a nun who allegedly committed suicide um, the background of this ghost is unclear. Some say she fell in love with a Venezuelan sailor. Um, and because nuns can't be in relationships or get married, um, she couldn't see him anymore once their relationship was exposed. Um, there's another version where the lover is a priest. And yet another mm, one. That re- sounds sexy. <laughs> Forbidden love. And, yeah. And there's another where her lover is a fisherman. Ew, but not a, that's not as sexy. It's not? I mean, who wants to date a guy that stinks like fish? Yeah, you're right. But I could see it as, like, again, the forbidden, like, when he comes to the dock. But, like, like, who says, though? Like, who says that she can't be with him? Can't she, like, renounce her vows? She could, but then she'd be turning her back on her faith. Okay, but she already did that by having premarital sex. Yeah, you're right. She already did that. You already did it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, either way, she fell in love with someone... 
and her commitment to the church was too great, and she just wouldn't allow herself uh, to, to leave, even when it was exposed. And then she killed herself after finding out that she was pregnant. Okay, see, um, but this is what I'm saying. Like, sorry, as someone who like grew up in the church, like, you don't kill yourself if you're that dedicated to the faith. Okay, so not to say, yeah. not okay, not to like, you know, not to, you know, make light of people who have killed themselves. But mm-hmm. if you're going to say like, okay, I can't be with you because I'm a nun and I have so much faith, then first of all, why you have a baby? And then second of all, why'd you kill yourself? If you're going to kill yourself, which is considered a sin in the Catholic Church, then you might as well have done the other sin and just stay with the dude. I don't know. I just don't get it. The whole thing is just full of, I don't know. Also, isn't it like you go to hell if you kill yourself? That's the belief, yes. That's what I'm saying. Like it's it goes because when you kill yourself, you're technically taking a life and only God gives and takes life is the belief in the church. So it's like yes, it is a sin. But obviously there's different interpretations. That's just the interpretation that I've been told. Um, but I'm sure people have different interpretations of that. I'm just saying, like, if you're gonna if that's the sin you're gonna commit, I don't know, pick the best pick the better sin, which is run away with the fishermen or whatever. Yeah, because would you go to hell if you ran, if you renounced your faith and went with the fish? I don't know. She could just <laughs> serve God as a private citizen, is what oh, I'm yeah, thinking. That's true. That's you could like you think you're better than me because you're none. No. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just just renounce your vows. Be like, hey God, I thought I could be a nun, but I gave it a shot. Also, I don't know. I just don't get it because it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna be okay. I'm just I'm going into like sticky territory in here here but I just feel like the story of Adam and Eve if you believe that story it was like Adam was lonely so he gave her he gave her uh he gave him Eve right and then in the book of Genesis it's like therefore a man will a boy or a man whatever will leave his parents and be one with his wife and then they go on their merry way and they multiply so my thing mm-hmm. is is marrying someone so bad that you can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just like, yeah, you know, it's not your fault that God made this man good looking and irresistible and really funny. And he laughs at your jokes and you laugh at his jokes. Like, that's not your fault. That's not your fault that you like this guy. So I'm saying yeah. like, just, I don't know. This doesn't make any sense to me. Like you already did it. You already had a baby. You just whatever. I don't know. Yeah. That's a fair point. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I don't agree with her methods. <laughs> I don't agree with her methods. I don't, I don't agree. Well, well, um, unfortunately, yeah, she did kill herself. And there are reports of people seeing a nun walking around with a lantern at night. Okay, old- that is terrifying. Yeah, right? You mm. see, I see that and I would just immediately, pa- like, pass out and die. I don't know. I, mm. That's the thing, though. Like, you're on an island. Like, what can you do? <laughs> you can't. What can you do? Right? You're on an island. Yeah. An uninhabited yeah. island. An uninhabited island. And you just see a nun walking around. Oh, fuck no. Mm-mm. Hell no. I don't blame the the uh, Coast Guard for getting the fuck out of Dodge, because that is terrifying. But then if she, okay, but she's a, if she's a nun, then she didn't go to heaven. If she's still roaming around. I don't know. How does that work? <gasps> yeah. How does well, that work? Well, actually... The article I was reading about was saying that because they were nuns and they probably had, um, assuming that they did all the, you know, the godly Mm -hmm. stuff, um, 
it wouldn't make sense for the ghosts to be nuns because they would be in heaven. They wouldn't be roaming earth. So they were thinking that it was either somebody else or whatever. Um, Because I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Why would a nuns, if they were good nuns, I don't know, (laughs) still be haunting the place? I mean, not to be that person, but I grew up in a Protestant church. And I mean, this is Protestant (laughs) perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm not behind. I'm not for this or against this. I'm just saying what this is what I was raised with. There's belief mm-hmm. in some Protestant churches that Catholics actually don't go to heaven. So that's <gasps> like a whole yeah, that's like a whole thing. <laughs> oh <laughs> shit! I did not know this. Well, oh my god! I mean, I don't know. There's you know, I don't want to start a Christian war, um, <laughs> denomination war here, but there is you know, as someone who grew up in a Protestant church, um, there is, I don't know, at least the way I've the. Not, I haven't been told this, but this is what I've observed is that it's it's like there's a lot of like us or them mentality. Like the Catholics mm-hmm. think the Protestants got it wrong, and the Protestants think the Catholics got it wrong. You know, mm, like okay. it's very it's very that. So like because I've okay. you know because there's a lot of things that Catholics do that a lot of Protestants aren't for, like the like the saints stuff like that. And then oh, also yeah, yeah like things like that. And then I don't know. So there is that belief from some protestants not all protestants but from some protestants that cath not, not all catholics necessarily go to heaven well but, yeah know. from what i've well a from what i've learned from a 10th grade history class is that i forgot that protestant and catholics like their beef goes back like a very long time so that makes well sense. we'll say the catholics started it so yeah the catholics started it, <laughs> the catholics yeah. started it. But also, I forgot that they. No offense. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to, you know, start anything either. I'm just saying, like, I noticed that, you know, it's interesting that Protestants worship saints because technically, yeah. that's against the, you know, that's against the Ten Commandments. Yeah. No, the whole thing is ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. But it's funny. The hypocrisy is what's funny. Um, but it's really funny because my mom, like, is my my, my parents are protestant pentecostal protestant and i the like there have been times where like i've liked a guy and my mom my mom's the most important thing for me my mom doesn't care if i date a white guy black guy whatever uh teacher plumber she doesn't care her first question is is you christian and me being like yes he's a christian is not actually satisfactory enough for her she wants to know what denomination non-denominational and christian catholic are two of the worst things you could tell her like she would rather me be like methodist baptist lutheran like she would rather anything other than non-denominational because for her non-denominational is like willy-nilly tattooed pastor with piercings that plays the guitar (laughs) it has like long hair like that for her is not okay and then a catholic that for her is also not okay like she's like i honestly feel like she would rather me almost date like i don't want to say like an atheist but i feel like she'd almost rather that than like a catholic because uh, there have been times where i've been like oh he's catholic and she'd be like oh no Mm -mm." and it's funny because she feels like she has a a say and so she says like "Mm -mm, no no no. move move along of course not and i'm like uh don't i get to make that decision (laughs) don't i get to you know say no or yes but Yeah. yeah it's really it's ridiculous it is ridiculous it's ridiculous but well well um if that's the case then i do feel bad for these nuns um and it might explain 
the, some of the hauntings because people have also said they've heard voices, footsteps, they've seen apparitions, they've seen shadows. People, more people are saying they're being pushed, feeling cold spots. Mm. Um, what if they're just vote, anemic? Cold spots. That is a good point. I remember I was looking on, I remember I was reading on Reddit, um, this, this girl was like, oh yeah, my dad has been like seeing like, um, like dark, like dark corners or dark figures, like the corner of rooms and stuff like that. And then she did an edit and she was like, uh, turns out my dad has glaucoma. (laughs) He's been seeing, he thought that the brat, like the spots that you see, he thought those were ghosts and it turns out it was glaucoma. But that's terrifying though. That is. Because like you would see that everywhere. You wouldn't just see that in one place. Like you see that everywhere. And you think you're being followed. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Oh no, poor guy. Well, I'm glad they found out he had glaucoma. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So another ghost is a man who wanders around the boat docks. Um, <clears throat> boatmen who dock at the island alleged to have seen other spirits wandering around the patient cemetery. And there's an, um, I already said that before. The Coast Guard soldiers who were being held down in their sleep. And like I was saying before, there's a Ghost Hunters International episode on Shakashikari Island. Um, and one bit that I remember is the investigators claimed like while they were investigating although okay i i already know like um these ghost hunting shows are questionable and they do ham it up and embellish um so take this with a grain of salt but they said while they were doing the investigation that they felt somebody pushing up the stairs they felt somebody pull on their pant leg and they heard voices via electronic voice phenomenon um, which was a female voice saying no um and they also told of a story of two explorers who came to the island. Um, they explored and got separated. And one of the explorers came upon a cemetery where some of the nuns are buried and saw a woman in white wearing Ew. lipstick. Yeah, wearing lipstick approaching him. And so he obviously got the F out of there. Um, and that I guess that was it. But they say that when you leave the gates of the cemetery open, you'll see the spirits moving in and out. So I guess close the door or close the gates. And, Ew, yeah. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, and I then another... I, this is, I'm sorry, I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. I'm almost done. And then another eyewitness saw a dark shadow black blocking a doorway. Um and just being, and then just being overwhelmed by a negative energy. So, like, whenever I watch like ghost adventures, ghost hunters, whatever, whatever, they always talk about like just walking in somewhere and feeling a very negative energy and sadness and anger or whatever. So, yeah. And and people say that, um, uh, rather than like you know the active type of hauntings, like haunted house movie type of hauntings that you think about, mm-hmm. sometimes um, in places like these where this was a leper colony. So there are people with leprosy who died here um, and they're isolated from their families. And so some of these things can actually result in what ghost experts, I guess is what they're called, called residual hauntings, where it's not like a ghost like actively like trying to like boo, scare you. It's just you died with like unfinished business. And so you're just repeating your living self over and over again. And that's just, that energy is left there. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, so basically like the many 
hauntings of the islands make sense when you think about like like i said how many of them have unfinished business because these people were abruptly separated from their loved ones like if you remember earlier they were forced to come to the leper colony they did not have a choice um and many were not allowed to ever see their loved ones in person so they died without ever seeing like husbands wives family kids things like that um and then and then another thing that i read in the article was that originally when that when the shakashikari leper colony was was established um the they separated the men and the women in different living quarters and then eventually um after a while they kind of relaxed the rules and then so you know what happens people got it on yeah people started fucking so so then people were having kids but you know what they did with the kids they took the newborns away from the mothers oh no and 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 i guess put gave the kids to be adopted so these women ha- and families, these men and women were having their kids ripped away from them and living in this isolation. Like, that's a lot. That's deep and heavy. What so, if, um, yeah. sorry to interrupt. Um, what if, I mean, I'm not saying that, I don't want to, I don't want to put this out there because I don't want it to come back and bite me, but, and so I'm not saying that like ghosts aren't real or that these, these experiences couldn't be real. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, what if, what if these experiences, just like, perhaps, like, what if these experiences that people have, like, um, with the pushing up the stairs, going down the stairs, or whatever, um, by by people who are kind of like already aware of the history of the island, like, what if it's just like collective guilt of what, mm. you know, what I'm saying, like, like you know, the horrific things happened here, and almost like the weight of that causes you to view things which in, I think mm-hmm. in any other context would be considered just like normal things or maybe things you wouldn't even pay attention at but mm-hmm. like you're because honestly like the mind is a very powerful thing mm-hmm. and you can feel thing you know what I mean you can't feel things that aren't really there so I'm thinking yeah. like what if like just like the weight of the horrific events the knowledge of the horrific events especially if you've like grown up around there and you like know what's happened like you know what i'm saying like what has happened there and also just like just the creepy vibe of this like uninhabited island and just being like because i'm thinking about those like government officials you know mm-hmm. and i don't know i'm just thinking like if that's also like a possibility i don't know yeah I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it also and it also just lines up with, um, again, with like the residual hauntings where it's just that energy, that sadness, the sorrow, yeah. the isolation, those feelings are left, that energy is left behind after people die. Yeah, because, um, yeah. Because yeah. I, I mean, we live in Virginia, so there's a lot of like, there's a lot of reminders around us of like hmm. slave quarters and I don't know like mm-hmm. like have you been to Mount Vernon? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I, I remember like being a kid and going to Mount Vernon and I remember like they took us into I remember like they took us into one of the supposed like one of the slave quarters I think and they were like telling us about like the life of you know just the life of like what a life the life of a slave would have been like and mm-hmm. I remember, like, just, and I was a kid, and I remember, like, getting bad vibes. 
mm-hmm. you know, like getting bad yeah. vibes. And then I actually remember like, not that the Holocaust Museum is haunted, but I remember like when we took a school trip to the Holocaust Museum, I remember like there was a room that was like, there was a room that was like, this is what life would have been like for the Jews hiding in attics. And I remember mm-hmm. like refusing to go in there because I got bad vibes too. Because mm. it was supposed to be like this, giving you sort of like a glimpse into what life would have been like. And then I remember when I went to Amsterdam and I went to the um, Anne Frank Museum, the same thing. It was like people were hiding here. Mm. You know what I mean? So just like little things like that. And I also, I feel like, I mean, that's why like I would want to go to Auschwitz. But then on the other hand, I wouldn't. Because just, like, I don't know, at least for me, like, I'm very sensitive to what happened in what happened in certain places or, like, what could have... You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, that feeling and that sadness and that grief you feel for the terrible things that have happened to innocent people in those places. For me, me at least, and I'm sure other people feel this way, too, it's, like, whether you acknowledge it or not, like if you are a decent human being and you're at least somewhat aware of what went on with people there, it's almost kind of like that can weigh on you too. And that can Mm -hmm. make you experience things as well. Cause I, I feel like I'm not, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I think I'm, I'm a skeptic when it comes to like ghost stories, but I feel like if I were on that Island, knowing what I know about what happened on that Island, I would, it would be hard not to feel like you're being watched. It would be hard not to feel like there's still a presence, an evil presence mm-hmm. on the island because evil things happen there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. And that's and that is something that's something to think about with like mo- a lot of ghost stories because like most ghost stories it's never like, "Oh, and then she died in her sleep and then like show you know showed up at my bed it was, it's always somebody yeah. who died in like um a violent way or someone who again like unfinished business or something terrible happened to them yeah to where someone probably is feeling guilt or should feel guilt yeah um if they don't um and yeah that en- that energy that guilt that feeling that definitely that definitely lingers um and it to me it might, it's it's something tangible yeah no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I mean, not, I think I just made a sad story even sadder, but I don't know. Just, that's just for me, is something like I was thinking about. It's just like, like, and I think also, like, I think being in any place where someone's died mm. is also like really sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And especially when hundreds of people, yeah. you can't, like, there's got, like, there, to me, there's got to be res- like residual yeah. energy still there. Yeah. I mean, how could, how could you not? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Sad. Well, that's the, that's it. That's the story. Oh, that's the story. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was so good. Thank you. Oh, I'm so, like, I'm curious. Like, I was, like, before you started the story, I looked up this island and I was kind of like, why does this place look, I was like, why are they just showing the same dilapidated house in every picture? But now that you told the story, <laughs> now it makes sense. Yeah, it's probably the only house on the on the island. This was the most ADHD episode I think we've had. 
Mostly, I appreciate it. mostly by me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about it. That's okay. So basically, like the Brits came and like created the leper colony. Is that what? Yeah, pretty much. Dude. I, I, and so, yeah, how brutal they are, and it's crazy to me that now we view them as like almost like like who doesn't love a man with an English accent? Who doesn't love Tom Hiddleston and Tom Holland and Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch and Adele? Like, who doesn't love them? And mm-hmm. then, um, you know what I mean? And, like, who doesn't love the royal baby? Who doesn't mm. love Queen Elizabeth? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, in- I don't know. It's just interesting how, like, amazing PR. And I, sp- and I speak as someone who has Anglophilia. I love my peep shows and my take that and my Graham Norton and my Benedict Carback Sherlock. Like I, my Downton Abbey. I love Downton Abbey. Um, You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. but dude, they were freaking awful. Like, ugh. Yeah. At their peak. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh is right. Ugh. Also, just a quick aside. um, Smaller scale, but like Belgium. Oh yeah, that's another one. Yeah, yeah. no one, no one King talks Leopold. about Oof. the fucked up shit they mm-hmm. did. France uh, too, France yeah. too. France so let's is awful. Bring it all out there, yeah. Europe, go fuck yourself, Saida. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, but but actually, <laughs> also just real quick, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna go on a rant about it, but like, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of stolen like artifacts like belgium um the uk yeah we went to the british museum of, do you remember yeah yeah, yeah exa- exactly like they have a lot of stolen artifacts that they and they refuse to give it yeah oh sorry. yeah they're refusing to give them back yeah. to their owners mm-hmm. like give that shit back the mm-hmm. fuck yeah oh, yeah yeah that's true they they have like refused to give it back it's like, like what, what are you, like why tricks. it's not yours can you believe, sorry, can you believe they have dead bodies in there? We walked past mummies. They have dead bodies in the British Museum. And they don't want to give it back? To their answer? Mm. Mm. And the thing is, like, England is interesting enough. Like, you're, like, England is interesting enough. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they're interesting enough. Without the other stuff. Because yeah. honestly, one of my favorite parts about going to London was going to the Museum of London. Yeah. Like, London has so much history about it without stealing from other people's cultures and all the colonizing. So why do you need to, why, why do we need to do that? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the great London fire, was that not fascinating? I mean, people died. I shouldn't say that, but, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, yeah, like, I don't know. Like, like I watched a whole documentary on the Royal family, like the house of Windsor, fascinating mm-hmm. stuff it was actually really yeah. interesting i actually something that seemed so boring was actually so interesting so yeah. yeah like europe is interesting on its own like you don't have to england is interesting on its own also england mm-hmm. is beautiful like you don't i don't know like yeah. like i don't know like you just don't i don't know it's just kind of like come on man like and the thing is also by holding on to those artifacts and by refusing because you have like egypt you have greece you have all these countries that are like hey man you want to give these things back like now that we've you know decided that racism is bad and colonialism is bad Mm -hmm. and slavery is bad you mind giving us our stuff back 
And they're they're them basically saying no is sort of like if you want the world to forget that you once came into these countries, destabilize their governments, which still has like implications now. Like mm. if you want to make the world forget that that's what you did, just give the stuff back. Give the yeah. stuff back. Say I'm sorry. Be like, hey man, on behalf of our forefathers or what have you, here's your stuff back. But they don't do that. Which basically re which basically like it's like that's what a that's what a colonizer would do. That's what you yeah. that's what a colonizer would do is refuse to give stuff stolen back. Just give it back. And it makes no sense to me because some of y'all like like you were saying, like if you want if you want us all to forget some of y'all want us to forget. Some of y'all get mad as hell when people want to talk about the history. So if y'all talk so much about let it go and, like, let's move forward. Okay, well, this is how we do that. You give the artifacts back to their owners. I mean, we're still not going to forget. Yeah. But... I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. On a, also, on another hand, like, at least the UK recognizes i feel as a hispanic i don't know i speak for myself i don't speak for other hispanic people but i'm like i haven't heard spain apologize for what was done in latin america that's true maybe i missed it maybe it's out there somewhere but i haven't heard anything yeah so spain you're next we're coming for you yeah just kidding oh no i'm not kidding actually i'm serious Mm. so spain is another ruthless empire Yep. So, yeah, and then Aren't we all Spain? speak we all speak Spanish because of them, which is wow. That's crazy to think about. That acts actually yeah. crazy to think about. Yeah. No, like our mother tongue has died out because of Spanish, the Spain. Yeah, like our wow. mother tongue. Like I could be speaking indigenous, I could speak indigenous languages, but. I don't, and also like at least in El Salvador, the indigenous language there is dying. Like it mm-hmm. only, it's only down to like a thousand speakers. Wow! So thanks, Spain. Thanks a lot. Jerks. <laughs> you're you're gonna need to edit all this out, Kristen. We've we've gone on way too. Far. <laughs> We're just talking to each other at this point. All right, folks. If you have somehow made it to the end, <laughs> we thank you immensely we hope that you uh got something out of what the stories that we shared today um and maybe a few chuckles you know um so we hope everyone has a great day night whatever's going on in your lives and take care and stay spooky